1: garments? Spotless are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you walking daily by the Savior's side? Are you washed in the blood of the Each moment in the crucified, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? When the bridegroom cometh, will your robes be white, pure and white in the blood of the Lamb? Will your soul be ready for the mansion bright? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless, are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? There is power, 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 wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. Power, power Sin-destroying power In the precious blood of the Lamb Are you washed in the blood In the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb Are your garments spotless Are they white as snow Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb are you washed in the blood of the Lamb?
2: Salvation to be real and available must be salvation from sin. Everything else fails. Any system of religion that does not break the power of sin is a lie. If it does not expel selfishness and lust for the things of the world, if it does not generate love for God and man, if it doesn't generate joy and peace and the fruit of the Spirit, it is false and worthless. Any system that fails in this vital respect is a lie and can be of no use. It's no better than a curse because it gives you a false hope. It makes you think that you're saved while you're lost. I can't think of a more desperate condition for a man or woman to imagine that they are saved while in fact they're lost because they continue to walk in sin. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. We have a powerful message for you today. We pray that today you will see and know the hand of God stretching out from heaven with Jesus pleading for you to turn from your sin and be made whole. This is Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel, and with me in studio is my wife, Alexandra.
3: Welcome. Thank you for joining us. And we are also live on YouTube right now.
2: We want to share with you today a message by Charles Finney. His text is found in Matthew 1, verse 21. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Let's pray. Lord, I'm asking today that every person listening to this broadcast could understand the fullness of this message. I'm asking Jesus if every person who hears this message would be convicted of all sin in their heart and their life and turn quickly by faith to be cleansed by your blood because you love them. Your heart has been poured out for each of us. Lord, would you reach out now and bring this gospel message in reality into their hearts. Break every illusion every delusion and make this message real in the name of Jesus amen
3: amen Jesus a savior from sinning Jesus a savior from sinning salvation from sin is the great need of humanity on this point there can be no mistake it is a stubborn fact. Salvation from sin is the great want of our sinning race. Nothing is more true than that as a race, men are sinners. All men know each other to be sinners. So men need salvation from sin. The, result, the reason of this need is that they are sinners, and as sinners they are utterly lost to happiness. Unless they can be saved from their sins. No man can be honest and yet deny this. This one truth is forever settled and known by all men. By being saved from sin, I do not mean pardon. For every man knows that pardon, without salvation from sinning, would not really save. For if a man were pardoned, but were still given up to the working of his sinful passions and selfish spirit, he would make for himself a hell, even in heaven. It is undoubtedly true that heaven would be the severest form of hell to the unsaved heart. There can be no heaven without holiness, and the change from sin to such holiness as prepares us for heaven Is exceedingly great. A world of selfish beings thrown together anywhere would be unutterably miserable. The Bible, throughout, assumes as if everybody knew these facts. It assumes that all men need to be saved from sin and have sense enough to know their need. Consequently, the Bible brings forward a plan by which, through Jesus Christ, we may be saved. From sin, This is the great burden of the message sent to us from God in his revealed word. Our text in Matthew speaks of Jesus Christ. The angel said to Joseph, Mary shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The Bible represents Jesus as having undertaken this work. It represents his name as being prophetic of the work he came to do. He is a savior. His work is denoted in his very name. So the Bible uniformly represents him as the following instances will show. It is said that in him shall all fullness dwell. He is able to save to the uttermost all that come unto God by him, who was able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us who is able to keep us from falling, and to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. The Bible also represents Jesus as being perfectly willing to do this work of saving us from sinning, as coming for the very purpose of doing it, as making this his errand and business in the world. Jesus is ready to undertake this work for all who will meet the conditions. The Bible represents him as waiting to enter upon it, and anxious to effect it in the case of all sinners, and of every individual sinner. Behold, says he, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him, and will sup with him, and he with me. Jesus thus represents himself to be accepted by each and every sinner, If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him. And this is only one of a large class of passages, which represent Jesus as waiting to accomplish this work of salvation in the sinner. He waits to be allowed to come in. He knocks and knocks, but then does not force the door. He waits till it be opened in the proper way, which is by repentance and faith. And his entrance is invited. Yet does the Bible most fully represent Jesus as being anxious to gain admittance, as waiting at the door of the sinner till his head is wet with dew and his locks with drops of the night? Oh, he would show us that he has the greatest desire conceivable to save us from all our sins. His heart is oppressed with sorrow and grief because sinners will not consent and because he must therefore give them over to final ruin. Hear him cry, How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Adma? How shall I set thee as Zeboim? My heart is turned with me. My repentings are kindled together. Oh that there were such a heart in them, and that they would consider their latter end. In fact the Bible is full of the most earnest and affecting testimonies of this sort Moreover the Bible represents Jesus Christ as taking the greatest pains to secure the consent of mankind to his terms and proposals of salvation For this end he places before them the humiliation to which he was vos- to which he has voluntarily subjected himself the sufferings he has endured and his waiting attitude now to do for them all they can possibly need to have done. Oh, could he only make them believe all this and appreciate it all as the fruit of infinite compassion for their souls.
2: The Bible also represents Jesus as having and granting all the petitions of truly praying souls. Jesus himself says everyone that asketh, receiveth. He does not merely say he shall receive, but he receiveth. It is asserted as a fact, a universal fact, from which there can be no exception. To vary the figure, he says the door is open to everyone that knocks. None can fail of gaining admittance who really knock. Christ does not say that every one who supposes himself to ask receives or who supposes himself to knock, shall find the door open to him. But every one who really asks, receives. This is all he can be understood to mean. Why is it that so many men are not saved at all? It is a fact beyond dispute that some who hear and know the gospel have no part or lot in the blessing. Why is this? Well, Many do not care to be saved from their sins. This is not the kind of salvation which they would have if they could be saved in their sins. They would like that full well. But they have no desire to be saved from their sins. The punishment they would gladly avoid if they could conveniently continue to live in the presence of sin while being forgiven or pardoned. Some have a desire, a sort of desire, but yet are not willing to be saved from sin. They have seen so much of the hatefulness of sin as to wish to be saved from it, but as many alcoholics wish to be saved from their bottles, but cannot for their life get them to sign a temperance pledge. This is often the case with sinners. They mistake their desire for willingness but they are not really willing. They often pretend they're willing, but if you push them, you'll find they're not willing. They will draw back and will not go straight forward in the gospel path of faith in Jesus Christ and of self-renunciation. And many mistake entirely the nature of this salvation and hence fail of embracing and securing its blessings They are looking for salvation from punishment and from hell. Hence, the thing they have their eye upon is not a pure heart, but a hope. They want to get rid of their fears. They would fain have a salvation, but not this, which consists in deliverance from their sins. They would fain have a Savior, but not Jesus, for he saves men from their sins." They cannot get him to do the thing they want done, for he will not save from hell those who will not first be saved from sin. So many fail because they are trying to make Jesus serve with their sins. Their effort to induce Jesus to take them in their sins and make them in this state his people and give them heaven, Their essential mistake is that they seek salvation from punishment and not from sin. Others are self-righteous. They really depend on their outward morality for salvation and, of course, they cannot take hold of Jesus as their Savior. It's astonishing to see how many such are found, even among those who hear the gospel preached in its purity. They reason in their own hearts If this or that professor is saved, I shall be too, for I am as good as he is. My life is as fair and unblemished as the life of any professed Christian within my knowledge. They look only on the outward appearance. No wonder such persons never come to Christ and are never saved from their sins. Now many people brought up in pious families and under gospel light are in a state similar to ancient Israel. They have too much good morality and self-righteousness to come to Jesus just as if they had none at all. And yet all this time, they know their own hearts are a moral dissolution. Many are endeavoring to get by faith, to get faith by works. They see their need of faith They think to get faith not by simply believing, but by setting about a series of works. When they have practiced works long enough, they seem surprised that they do not have the product of the workings of their faith. Now, this is strange indeed, as if they could perform duty without faith, and if their duties performed without faith would be so acceptable to God he would give them faith as their reward for duties wrought out in the spirit of unbelief, as it is. God never said whatsoever is not God said whatsoever is not of faith is sin. How marvelous that men should think to get faith by mocking God and by sinning against God. How is it possible that men with our Bible in their hands should hope to get salvation without faith? or faith by works, without believing. Yet so it is. Instead of resting right down upon the divine promises by simple faith, they go to work to get faith by works of righteousness. Nothing can be more plain than that such personal, misapprehended, the gospel scheme of salvation by grace alone, through faith in the crucified Savior. So why is it that so many are saved, but only in part? It's a fact too obvious to be denied or doubted that many Christians stumble and fall in their Christian course. They show that they have not thoroughly taken hold of this Jesus who saved his people from their sins. Why is this failure of real salvation?
3: One reason is that some apprehend their necessities only in part. They have only a partial view of their real need of such a savior from sin as Christ is. They are so far blind to their necessities that they do not lay hold of Christ with an active, earnest faith. They assume that they are already saved and thus entirely misconceive their own real case. Others apprehend Christ only in part, having very imperfect notions of his offices and character. It would seem that the great mass of professing Christians are looking to Christ to forgive their sins and secure their pardon, but this is all. They look for no sanctifying influence or agency from Jesus Christ. In place of this, they resort to a notion of Christ's imputed righteousness. It is remarkable that so many Christians have settled down in this notion of an imputed rather than imparted righteousness on the notion that Christ, instead of imparting, imputes righteousness to his people. Instead of creating in them personal holiness, makes over to them the credit of his own holiness, while they are yet unsanctified. Instead of making them holy in fact, only accounts them wholly in law, while they are really sinful. This is a most strange and singular doctrine indeed. I am well aware that it is not singular in the sense of being uncommon or out of fashion, but surely it is strange in view of either Bible teachings or the essential nature of things. Its advocates must read our text, not, He shall save his people from their sins, but shall save them from the punishment of their sins. Salvation from punishment is to them the essential thing in the gospel. They do not, to be sure, expect men to be saved without holiness, but they suppose that death secures deliverance from sin. And then to finish the work, Jesus imputes to them his own righteousness. This they deem all-sufficient as both fitness and title to heaven. In modern terms, we would use the phrase, when God sees me, he sees Jesus, and Jesus credited to me his righteousness. But that is not what the gospel teaches. A Presbyterian minister of high standing in his church said, I never heard of such a thing as this, that Christ is the sanctification of the soul. Horrible! Horrible! This, a leading man in the Presbyterian church, and yet has not heard that Christ is a sanctifier of his people, seems never to have heard that Jesus saves his people from their sins.
2: Likewise, we've heard from a precious person, they've never before heard that their weekly confession and absolution of sin has no meaning that it's devoid or empty of meaning because they assume that they are saved because Jesus' righteousness covers them as with a blanket. And so they assume that they are saved, so they go through the motions of confessing a generalized sin. They are absolved by the priest and then assume they're good to go for another week.
3: Yes, but the truth is that Jesus actually makes you into a holy person. So you don't remain a sinner who goes on sinning, but God views you as holy. That's not true. The truth is that Jesus actually makes you holy in real life.
2: And if he does not make you holy in real life, you have believed a lie. And you cannot be saved in that condition we must turn from our sin and allow Jesus to save us from our sins, not from the punishment of our sins, but from our actual sin.
3: And as a result of being saved from sinning, we are saved from hell.
2: And so this piece by Charles Finney speaking about this Presbyterian minister, he had never heard of such a thing that Christ is the sanctification of the soul. Sanctification simply means to be made holy in reality. He'd never heard that before. And I'm sure some of you listening today, if you're listening for the first time, you've never heard this before. You have rested in a false hope that you have received Jesus and said a sinner's prayer And now you're saved, because you've been told that. But in fact, you are not saved. And you must turn to Jesus quickly, or you will be lost.
3: Finney goes on, This class of Christians have some notion that there is a Holy Ghost, who will have some agency in sanctifying his people just at death or just after death, Somehow and somewhere near the eventful point of death, but just how or when is certainly not made very definite in their teachings. How it is done in cases where death comes suddenly or where disease arrests all sane action of the mind is not distinctly stated. Yet death is relied on as the great sanctifier. The Christian in the prospect of death is encouraged and animated with the hope that his deliverance from sin is just at hand. All this is said as confidently and solemnly solemnly, as if the Bible had said, Not of the child Jesus, but of death. Death's name shall be called Jesus, for death shall save you from your sins. Or as if God had never said, Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. How great and prevalent is this difficulty? Men apprehend Christ only in part and seem incapable of apprehending him in all his precious relations. Now, another reason why Christ is not fully apprehended is that many who have known something of the gospel live on their resolutions and not on Christ. They are perhaps not aware of this fact, but if they ever come to depend on Christ, they will see that they have been trying to brace themselves up on the strength of their own resolutions. On the other hand, many depend on faith without any resolution. Theirs is a puny, sickly faith, void of energy or activity. Now, both these last-mentioned classes are utterly mistaken. Both those who depend on resolutions without faith and those who trust in faith without resolutions. Both equally miss the very thing which the gospel requires and which alone can ensure success, namely resolving and executing in the promised strength of Jesus Christ.
2: So a man who chews tobacco and says, I'm trying as hard as I can. I have resolved I will leave this chewing of tobacco because it's filthy i know it's wrong i have a guilty conscience i'm going to leave it but i'm waiting for that day when i finally am strong enough in myself to say okay today's the day i'm done he said i've done this many times but i've never left my chewing
3: or you even see it there's actually an app on your phone that's supposed to help you quit smoking that's, the, that's a very classic example of trying to overcome sin by resolution. But Jesus is incredible because when we come to Jesus in faith, he frees us from all sin in one shot.
2: It's not, okay, I'll deal with my smoking, then I'll deal with my alcohol, then I'll deal with my chewing tobacco, then I'll deal with my fornication, then... On and on, a whole list of sins.
3: That's not how Jesus saves us.
2: That's kind of a whack-a-mole mm-hmm. approach.
3: But Jesus saves us completely from all sin. In an instant. And we don't swap out one sin for another, but we're free from all sin.
2: And when we're freed from all sin, it is by the power of the blood of Jesus. But then there must be a resolution in our heart that we will be utterly given to Jesus. Yes, that we will not go back to our life, that we've moved out of our life and Jesus has moved in.
3: Finney continues, many who know something about the necessity of having a pure heart are yet seeking comfort without purity. They give themselves up to pray for comfort and happiness while all the time they are inflicting self-torture by the indulgence of sin. They act as if they suppose that by his own arbitrary act, God would make them happy and fill their souls with blessedness, while yet their hearts are full of sin. Than which no more rank delusion or essential absurdity was ever broached by mortals.
2: Let's talk about another issue quickly before we continue this. A mother or father screaming at each other and screaming at their children in a rage and many other sins of a similar nature. Anger, pride, sitting down and, as one man said, Pastor, I've tried and tried and tried to stop playing the boxing video game, but I just can't do it. It calls to me. Another man, you know, Pastor, I just can't get away from gambling. I gamble on sports, I gamble here and there. It's in my blood. It calls to me. Or another man, When he comes home from church, and this is many pastors, he served the Lord all day. He comes home, he's tired, so he wants a beer, and he wants to sit down and spend the next four or five hours watching movies or television. Doesn't want anybody to bother him.
3: God has so much more for us than for you to be trapped in something as foolish foolish as, a ga- as gambling or as... Were you going to say a, stupid? I was going to say a boxing video game. <laughs> God didn't create you to be enslaved to a boxing video game. He created you to be free and to serve him in love.
2: And he didn't call you to scream at your wife, mister. And he didn't call you, wife, to scream at your husband and jerk your kids around. That's just not what we were born for.
3: Another reason why people aren't fully delivered from their sin is because they want to be delivered from sin because they want the personal comfort of being sanctified. Inasmuch as their desires don't extend beyond themselves, and hence are purely selfish, there is good reason why they get so little of that blessing which they so selfishly seek. Many satisfy themselves with the hope of a future salvation only. They are satisfied with the hope of its coming at length, and can forgo the present possession without any painful solicitudes. It is enough for them that they shall ultimately go to heaven, and they seem not to be straitened with the intense desire of entering into the deep rest of the gospel at once. When persons begin to be pressed strongly with the desire for present and full salvation, there is hope for them that deliverance is near. When like the prodigal son they begin to be in want, then they become painfully conscious That there is a mighty famine in the land, where they are, and that starvation stares them in the face. So that when their thoughts revert to the bread and plenty in their father's house, there is a deep yearning of desire and stirring up of purpose. Then there begins to be hope in their case. But many content themselves with the hope of future salvation." and have no strong conceptions of the power of Jesus to secure for them a present salvation. Thus they slide along and never know half the present power, the present value, and present blessedness of gospel salvation. Many draw back through fear of the present consequences of being pure from sin. They see or think they see the trials to which it may subject them. And they shrink before these trials, as if the blessing of a pure heart must cost too much. Many think their sins are forgiven, and seem to satisfy themselves with the hope that they are justified before God. They know they live in sin, but they strangely imbibe the impression that they are accepted of God, are his real children, and have a well-founded hope of eternal life. Of this class one thing must be certain. They have not one particle of religion. If they can content themselves and bless their souls that they are justified, and then live along without a devoted life and without a penitent, grateful heart, drawn to God evermore by a sense of his pardoning grace, they have not the first particle of real religion. For how can the state of mind consist with real love to God? How can there be real love to God in the soul, which yet shall not constrain the soul to love God and do his will?
2: Multitudes who have professed religion have lost their path, have got out of the way, are thrown off their track, and are now wandering like boys in the woods, going round and round forever in a circle. Perhaps they think are steering a straight line and in the right direction. Whoever has been really lost in the woods so as to lose utterly all points of compass and to have his head completely turned will understand the situation of multitudes of professed Christians. They perhaps once knew what it was to believe and rejoice in hope, to live under the smiles of God's countenance. But they've sinned. They've gone out of the way. For days and weeks they are lost in the wilderness of sin, Dark clouds and dense fog alternate around their path, and they feel sadly desolate. They seem to be as much at a loss as to what to do as if they had never known the way of life. A darkness that can almost be felt gathers around and seems to press its thick gloom hard upon them on every side. I remember to have seen the remark in some of the old writer's that it is one of the hardest things in religion for a backslider to return to God. At first I thought this a strange remark and said to myself, how can this be? But subsequent observation and reflection showed me that there is much truth in it. I've seen many striking manifestations of its truth. So doubtless have you. You've seen professed Christians get out of the way begin to struggle and flounder, plunge into the mire and only get in the deeper for all their struggles to try to get out. They even begin to doubt whether they were ever converted and perhaps even whether anybody else has ever been converted, not even accepting those who are most esteemed for piety they may next question whether there is any such thing as conversion or whether the Bible is even true. They find no God to pray to, and when they attempt to pray, it is as if they were speaking into the vacant air. When Christians get away from God, they often go further into doubt and skepticism than they did before they were converted at all. Some dreadful cases of this sort are a warning, a portent, warning against the perils of backsliding. But it often happens that those who got not nearly so far as this, and who never doubt the truth of the Bible, yet get away so far that they lose their way, and do not know at all how to get back. And this leads me to say that when persons become anxious and perplexed, one reason why they fail of finding their path is they seek it without their guide. They think that they must go back on the right track before they can have Christ to help them. They think they are seeking the track in order to find Jesus there. Like a man lost in the wilderness who's trying to get out somewhere so that he can get a guide. He pitches into a slaw on this side and into a thorn bush on that side and never thinks to ask himself, how can I hope to get out of this dreadful swamp in this pitchy darkness? Without a guide. So the Christian sets himself to work self righteously with all of his might to get relief. Like the lost traveler, he runs, he shouts at the very top of his voice, and makes the deep glens of the forest echo with his cries. He rushes into thickets and brambles, and plunges into sloughs of deep mire, and wears out his strength in vain. At last, does not seem to occur to him to ask how can i ever extricate myself from this dreadful condition without my guide see him his heart struggles intensely and he cries oh that i knew where i might find him all is discouragement what is the matter the trouble is he has no guide where is his guide? Where is his Jesus? Has Jesus lost sight of his dear child? Oh no. He's following hard and close after him, crying in his ear. Lo, this is the way. Walk ye in it. He draws near. He offers the lost wonder, wonder, his own hand to help and to guide. Alas, that poor and guilty wanderer will rely on his own wisdom to find the way himself and on his strength to get out of the slaw of despond and will not cast himself wholly and at once on the offered help of his present Savior. How many times I've seen people in this state pressed with trouble till they actually give up all for lost and then bethink themselves of one more last resort just to leave themselves simply in the hands of Jesus. And then salvation comes. They return to the first simple thing of the gospel, let go of self-dependency and cast themselves on Jesus, or rather drop in the sinking of their self-despair, drop into Jesus alone and there find help. Then they see the pole star of hope through the darkness of their despair.
3: In all this I am speaking of things that I know, for I can well recollect being in this state of mind myself. I was striving to get the salvation of the gospel without Jesus. I had not forgotten that there was a Jesus, but I was conscious of not enjoying his presence and his aid, and the deep inquiry in my heart was, Where shall I find him? While thus sitting and deeply musing with myself to know why I did not get hold of the gospel, those words of Isaiah came to me, I will lead the blind by a way which they know not. I saw at a glance that my trouble was, a want of my guide. I had spent many days and hours trying to get hold of salvation. This passage came home to me as if sent on purpose to meet my case. Now, I said, the remedy has come. I have been trying to get out of my entanglements without my guide. Here is the explanation. I have been blind, and I have not taken hold of his hand, who says, I will lead the blind by a way which they know not. Oh, let me now take hold of Christ, just where I am, here in this deep and dark wilderness, and all will be well. He's on my right hand, and I need not fear. Again, Many do not lay hold of Christ because they totally misapprehend the way and are trying to do something first. Instead of committing their whole souls to Christ, they are trying to save themselves. Hence, they run here and there, everywhere else but to Christ alone. They do not seem to understand that Jesus is really the Savior from sin and that they have only to commit themselves to him at once, just as they are. They seem to have lost the idea that Jesus must be received for just what he is, a savior from sin, and that they must renounce themselves and receive him, saying, I never shall keep myself. I renounce forever the expectation of doing anything without laying hold on thee. Lord Jesus, hold me up. The work is thine. I depend on thee to do it, and on thee alone will I rest henceforth and forever. What Christian does not know by his own experience what it is to be thrown into circumstances of great trial in which the soul is fully brought to say, Lord, I cannot hold myself up at all. I must sink without thee. Lord, save or I perish. Many have hope who are not really saved in any proper sense of the word. They are neither saved from sin now nor will they be saved from hell hereafter.
2: You know, that's a frightening statement that Charles Finney has just made. That a man would have, or a woman would have hope that they are saved because they attend church, they love people, they give tithes and offerings, they make their confession at church, And they're absolved of their sin by the priest. But they're not saved. That's a false hope. It is. And in that false hope. They've been vaccinated against that which would save them. So they think they have no need of a deeper walk with Jesus. And. Alexandra, we face this with this question of revival.
3: Well, the question is not a deeper walk with Jesus. It's that you don't actually have a walk with Jesus if you're still sinning.
2: And as we invite people to come to revival meetings, they don't come because there is no sense of lostness because they have been fully convinced that they are saved while still walking in their sin. Until this consciousness of sin begins to dawn on a person's heart and all of the false comforts are stripped away, there's no hope for them.
3: No one has reason to hope for heaven any further than he is really saved from sin.
2: say that again.
3: No one has reason to hope for heaven any further than he is really saved from sin.
2: So I ask you today have you been saved from sin? Do you have a hope for heaven in your heart but you've not been saved from your sin? Then your hope for heaven is a false hope. And there must be a change.
3: Those who possess the religion of the gospel but are not sanctified virtually bring up an evil report against the gospel. If you say, I am a Christian, but I know that I am not saved from sin, I embrace a gospel which professes to save from sin, you see in me how much its professions are worth. What must be the influence of your testimony? When a Christian commits himself to Jesus to save from sin, it is good for him to use this argument in prayer. Lord, it will dishonor you if you do not save me from all sin. I have trusted in you. I do now take hold of your promises. Let them be fulfilled in my case, and let all men see what your grace has done for me, and know your salvation.
2: But you see, I've read parts of Plato's philosophy and he was very clear that it's not possible for any man to live without sin and somehow that philosophy has now entered into the American thought process so that you speak with almost any American and he will say no one is perfect everyone sins every day It's impossible to live without sin. That is common folklore knowledge that has permeated the Christian church.
3: But that's just a lie. And what it's saying is that they don't actually believe that Jesus will save them from sinning. So it's Jesus who saves us from sinning. It's a gift of God. And that's why it's an honor to him. It's an honor for God to save you from sinning. Another difficulty that people face in overcoming sin is they only are thinking about the disgrace on themselves if they don't overcome temptation. But in fact, the greatest evil is that you will dishonor Christ if you continue to sin. If any of you listening will believe, you will have no other difficulty. No obstacle can possibly be in your way to shut off the power of the gospel from your soul when once you embrace the sinner's savior by a living faith. The great difficulty now is for Jesus to persuade men to believe and to cast themselves on him by a perpetual self-renunciation and perpetual dependence. Let me ask you, my hearers, how many of you can testify that this is the case with yourselves, That in your own individual case, Jesus has to your certain knowledge been laboring to present himself before you in such inviting forms as should inspire faith in himself, but he has labored almost, or perhaps completely, in vain. Halfway believers are the greatest stumbling blocks in religion. They profess to embrace Christ and be religious, and yet fail of having grace enough to overcome sin. If you would only embrace Jesus so as to be full of his spirit, how greatly you would honor your Lord. As it is, how earthly-minded, sensual, and devilish do you become. No wonder you are ashamed to say that Jesus is a savior from sin. How can you bear such testimony without reading yourself out of the list of the heirs of heaven?
2: We've been sharing a message from Charles Finney entitled, Jesus, a Savior from Sinning. We're almost out of time for this broadcast today. But I am desperately concerned about the church in America and this lie that has permeated the church that you cannot stop sinning. It is a dishonor to the blood of Jesus. It is a trampling on the blood of Jesus. And I urge you, cast yourself today fully upon Jesus and ask him to utterly wash and cleanse you. And he will do it.
3: And this is not optional. It's not just that you're able to live a sinless life, but it is required for you to live a sinless life through faith in Christ in order for you to be saved.
2: Now, we're coming to the end of the month. And if you cherish these messages, we would very much appreciate hearing from you. In the last two weeks, we have heard from only one of you and we recognize the end of the month is coming, would you respond and help us carry this message of salvation to Washington, D.C.? You can do that by writing to us at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195, Every day we go to the post office box, and as we have found it empty day after day, we have been pleading with Jesus and saying, Lord, fill the box. You can also give online by going to nationalprayerchapel.com, nationalprayerchapel.com. Click on the Donate button.
3: And you can also listen to this message again and pass messages at that webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com.
2: God bless you, my brother, my sister. We love you and we want you to be saved, to be washed and to be clean by his blood. We'll talk to you soon.
3: God bless you. Before the presence
2: of his
1: glory With great joy With great joy